Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Laurian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you decided to join us. Let's get started. joining me this week. It's a huge help when you like, rate, and subscribe to Between the Creations wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook for news about upcoming episodes. You can find out more about the podcast, submit topics you'd like me to cover on an episode, or even ask me to speak at your event at laurianhook.com. Well, welcome everyone to this week's episode of Between the Creations. I'm really excited that you are listening. Again, you guys know the routine. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you've been with us since the beginning, thank you so much, and your support means everything. Uh, And I'm, as always, I'm really excited about today's episode. I have Dr. Leslie Baines with me. She is an associate professor uh, in the Religious Studies Department at Missouri State University, which I think, uh, I was thinking back through all our episodes, we haven't had someone yet from... um, from a public university, everyone's been from seminary or private institutions, so it's so it's so good to kind of have have some of that diversity. Uh, she has a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. Man, I was looking at the list on your bio on Missouri State's page. You teach a lot of different classes. Like there's there's quite a list there. She is uh, a member of SBL and actually uh, chairs one of the the sections there, which is a big deal for those of you who don't know about society, biblical literature, and kind of the circles that biblical scholars run in. Uh, you have to continually put out work, and she has continued to put out awesome articles. She does a lot of stuff with apocalyptic writing, both in Jewish and Christian literature, and then she. She's also got some stuff on C.S. Lewis that we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast, so keep your ears open for that. She's got a new project coming up. Um, but welcome, Dr. Baines. Thank you so much for being with us. Do you have anything else that you want to add to your to your bio for our guest, for our listeners to get to know you better as our guest this week? Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is quite an honor, and I'm pleased to be here. So thanks for talking about Missouri State. And it's very interesting that I'm your first person here from a public university We have such a great religious studies department at Missouri State. I am so happy to be there. And we get people from uh, all kinds of faith backgrounds, no faith backgrounds. It is such a great place to be in Springfield, Missouri. That's awesome. I love love that you are doing intensive religious studies in that environment. And I'm sure it feels a little different than some other guests that I've had who are doing it in a purely religious or even purely specifically Christian environment. So that's awesome. I I think the diversity of student and the diversity of topics that you guys get to cover is is awesome um, with, with the program. So we're so glad to have you with us today. Um, like I mentioned, y'all, she does a lot of stuff with apocalyptic writing, and uh, if you don't know what that word means, that's okay. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but we're also the kind of the the main majority the majority of the episode. We're going to talk about Revelation. So she has an article. You have an article coming out in the Cambridge Companion to the New Testament on Revelation, which again, guys, that's a big deal. Like publishing and getting stuff out there in the world is is not easy sometimes. So uh, you were gracious to give me a preview of this essay. So we're going to reference some of that. But we're going to talk about Revelation. We're going to talk about why it's kind of an avoided book, why maybe we shouldn't avoid it, why it has a lot of good stuff in it that we should actually kind of learn from theologically, even just for our Christian lives and being in this world and stuff like that. So we've I've thrown around the word apocalypse and apocalyptic uh, a few times 
times already, but could you kind of give us some context for what do we mean when we talk about apocalypse or when we talk about apocalyptic literature? Where are we situating ourselves in, in literature itself? Yeah, apocalypse. Apocalypse is actually a Greek word, and it is the very first word in the book of Revelation itself. And when people hear the word apocalypse in our culture today, you know, it's used a lot. Um, I remember in the winter, people were talking about snowpocalypse, right? <laughs> it's a word that is often used to represent some kind of catastrophe. So people can use it playfully like snowpocalypse, or you can talk about a nuclear apocalypse or a global warming apocalypse or something like that. And of course, words change over time. So the way that people use words is what they mean. But when we are talking about the apocalypse in the New Testament, and we're, when we're talking about other apocalyptic literature in the Hebrew scriptures and outside the canon of scriptures, apocalypse means something different than that. Uh, we have to use the word based on the context that we are talking about. And in this context, apocalypse literally means uncovering or unveiling. It's like having a scarf over something and pulling the scarf off and going, ta-da! Uh, that is literally what apocalypse means when we're thinking about it in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, in other books outside the canon that we might want to talk about here in a minute. And also, scholars have defined it as a literary genre. So in the ancient world, we can't find any evidence that people identified a literary genre called apocalypse, but it seems as if they had one anyway. So an apocalypse is uh, a book that narrates a vision uh, or an audition, if you want to call it that, something that people are hearing that comes from a heavenly figure. So that is exactly what we get in the book of Revelation. Yes, yes. And you mentioned some some sources and some writings that are outside of the the canon of scripture uh that are have that actually help us understand what the apocalypse uh sections of scripture that we have. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit because I think that I don't think that a lot of of Christians realize that yeah, there's extra biblical literature. There's different books that weren't included in the Bible necessarily, depending on your denomination. Um, that actually can be interesting and helpful when we approach apocalyptic literature. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit for people who just who aren't super familiar with that? Sure. I've said that apocalypse is a genre of literature. And when you've got a genre of something, it's not just one, right? You can't have a genre of one. You've got to have multiple things in order to see the commonalities between them. And there are two full-fledged apocalypses in what we call our canon of scripture today. Um, there's the book of Revelation in the New Testament and the book of Daniel in the Hebrew scriptures. But outside of the scriptures, there are dozens of other apocalypses. And some of these are better known than others. Uh, the one that I recommend people to work with the most, if they're interested in dipping their toe into this literature, is the book that's called First Enoch. And First Enoch isn't actually a unified book. It's kind of like the Bible in that it was put together after the fact. Uh, it was written by multiple people over many centuries, and we just kind of glom it all together and now call it First Enoch. 
And what's interesting, oh gosh, there's so much that's interesting about First Enoch, but what's interesting here for our purposes is that a lot of the themes in the book of Revelation uh, that people think about, like demons and uh, life after death in the way that Revelation talks about it, actually developed through, um, well, let me rephrase that. We get evidence of seeing this development of these ideas of demons and resurrection and stuff like that represented in the booklets that make up First Enoch. So if you really want to understand Revelation, you can't just read Revelation. You have to read the Hebrew scriptures that the author of Revelation quotes over and over again. And you also have to have some idea of the greater genre of apocalyptic literature and how they're treating the same themes there. Because it seems, now clearly the author of Revelation really knew his Hebrew scriptures. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> there's some debate as to whether or not he knew first Enoch. That conversation is still ongoing. Yeah, it's it's very clear. There are lots of Old Testament references in Revelation that are so key to the way to the way the seer wrote it to to understanding what is happening because it just it all folds in on itself in some ways. You get Old Testament, you get New Testament, you get future, you get past, and it's really just a beautiful depiction that we get. Um, and that's, that's something I want to come back to is, is it is it mostly good news or is it mostly bad news? And I want to circle back to that in a second. But before we get there, I want to ask you, so, you know, first sentences in, in writings are important. Our introductory sentence is always something that we hope grabs people's attention and that really speaks to what we're about to unveil and what we're about to write about. And in this essay that you that you sent me that's going to be coming out in the Cambridge Companion, the first sentence you wrote about Revelation is you said, Revelation is resistance literature, which I just think that's such a great sentence. Um, but could you maybe just expound on that just a little bit and kind of give us a picture of why, why is it resistance literature and, and how can we better understand it and read it with that lens? What a great question. And it's so astute of you to talk about the importance of first sentences. Uh, when authors put out that first sentence in that first paragraph, it's pretty purposeful. It's not just an accident. So that's a great thing to think about in every piece of literature that you are looking at. So yeah, um, Revelation is resistance literature because it is being written in the context of the Roman Empire. And the author, whose name is John, absolutely despises the Roman Empire. <laughs> he thinks that they are literally Satan. Uh, so he personifies the whole system in, in various ways throughout the book. And he thinks that they have actually gotten the, their power their imperial power through the work of Satan. So to him, now whether this is happening or not, this is another one of the many things that's debated about the book of Revelation. How much persecution of Christians is actually going on at the time? Um, people really differ on that question, but whether or not lots of Christians are being killed or not, 
John believes that the Roman Empire is responsible for oppressing the saints, as he calls them, the Christians. And it's not just spiritual persecution for him. Um, it's very, very practical. Um, as we go through the book, we see that there is a lot of economic persecution going on. And it seems that for at least some of the people that John is writing to, or in his mind, uh, he believes that in order to work with the Roman Empire in a financial sense, he makes the metaphor, it's like having sex with a whore. Yeah. It's, he does not <laughs> mince words. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't mince words at all. Uh, I teach Revelation every semester, and I remember one student coming up to me and saying, I never dreamed of, that the word whore was in the Bible. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, then you probably haven't read too much of the Bible, have you? <laughs> because it's not just in Revelation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we get to Revelation chapter 18 when John is having a vision, he's reporting having a vision of the fall of Babylon. And Babylon is the word that he uses for Rome. And at the end of it, well, actually more kind of in the middle of it, he is thinking about the merchants who are weeping and wailing over Babylon because they're not going to be able to trade with her anymore. And he gives this long, long list of all of the things that the merchants of the world have gotten rich by working with Babylon. He goes down through things like spices and fabrics and animals and uh, precious stones and food. And the very last thing he says, and this is kind of hard to translate, and human beings. Ro the, the Roman Empire was literally built on slavery. And this is one of the clearest condemnations that we receive of slavery in the entire New Testament. Uh, so John is resisting all kinds of things in the book of Revelation. Yeah, that resistance literature, just it's woven all throughout um, what we see in, in the book. So that, thank you. That was, a, that was a beautiful explanation of that. And I love that you, you highlight how it's, it's Babylon, which is in many ways, just kind of this representation of all evil empires throughout the ages that are anti God's kingdom, um, who are built on, on the backs of, of people, uh, via slavery or just via, um, violence and, and overpowering people and those types of things. Um, so yeah, it's, it is resistance literature. It's, it's standing up. It's saying this will be no more. God's kingdom is, has come to bear and will fully come to bear soon. And, and Babylon will fall. Rome will fall. Egypt, Assyria, all these kingdoms, uh, have fallen and they will continue to fall. The ones that, that mirror themselves after these things. And so, yeah, the resistance literature part is huge. And I love that that was how you opened that essay. Uh, so thank you for that explanation. 
another thing that I want to that I want to ask you about is uh, one of the questions that I sent to you kind of before before we met was, you know, what are what are some of the things that are just m- most commonly misinterpreted m- misinterpreted or things that we've just consistently may- maybe gone wrong? But I think another aspect of that that comes up in in your essay here is things that we focus on and we I say we meaning like collective readers of Revelation for the past several centuries, <laughs> um, specifically mostly in the West uh, have have maybe over focused on in one of the sentences that you wrote that that I loved you said the millennium takes up only six verses in revelation <laughs> and, but we make it and and people have made it this huge huge thing um I'm so I'm writing a curriculum for Bible study on Revelation, and I've already had at least seven people ask me, so are you right? What position are you writing the curriculum from when it comes to the millennium? And I'm like, I, I'm not really taking a position because it's only six verses and it doesn't like, that's not the message of the book. Um, so could you maybe speak to maybe the millennium, but also maybe a few things that you just, as you've interacted with, with people over the years through Revelation, you're like, we've tried to make this the main thing, but it's not. And maybe we've, we've focused too much on this. Uh, could you maybe speak to that kind of sentiment or that kind of idea a little bit? Sure. Years ago, I homeschooled my kids. This was back in the 90s when homeschooling was not nearly as common as it is now. And of course, the last year and and some months now, we've been in the pandemic and a lot of people have been homeschooling involuntarily. Uh, But when I homeschooled my kids in the 90s, you know, you want community. You've got to have community for your kids. So I was looking for a homeschool community and there was one that was nearby at a local church, and they would not allow you to come into the homeschooling community unless you signed a document saying that you believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not shocked at this, but you know, it, it, I, I totally get this where that's coming from. <laughs> So needless to say, I did not, well, you you don't know me, so I did not sign that document because I am not a pre-tribulation rapture believer, but it just struck me as really funny that they didn't even want their children to be around other families who did not believe that. And it was such a big deal to them that they were going to write it into an official contract. So yes, from the very beginning, Uh, we have discussion controversy about what the millennium is. So let me step back for a minute and talk about what it means from the very beginning. We're not exactly sure when Revelation was written, but most scholars are willing to cop to it being in the late first century. Because by around the year 125, 130, 150, 160, we get people quoting Revelation and talking about Revelation. So, you know, it just stands to reason that it had to have been written before that time. And the things that we can read about Revelation, they are arguing about what this millennium is. So from the very dawn of discussion about Revelation, this has been a big issue. So I suppose it's not surprising that it is still a big issue 2,000 years later, but it is so interesting that it's just six verses there and then it moves on. So there are essentially, there have been essentially two different interpretations of what the millennium is. And I wonder if maybe we should like go to it, go to those six verses. Absolutely. Please do. 
maybe that would be helpful for people, you know, who don't have their Bibles in front of them with the podcast. Yeah, and feel free to feel free to read that in whatever translation you would like to uh, for, for the listeners. That would be great. Okay, so I'm in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to paraphrase some of it. Um, we have the dragon, the serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And this is the figure who has given the power to the Roman Empire. And the devil and Satan, same person, bound for a thousand years and locked up and sealed. And then while this is going on, there are thrones and those seated on the thrones were given authority to judge and also the souls of those who had been beheaded for standing up for Jesus, who had not worshipped the beast, which is Rome, uh, and all of that. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And John calls this the first resurrection. And then he says the people who are in this first resurrection will not die in the second death, which comes later, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign for a thousand years. So this is Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 6. And the main controversy uh, that got connected to this, and I've got to say to chapter 21, 2, as well as chapter 22, this millennium isn't just the millennium anymore. The millennium literally is a thousand years, but somehow everything that comes after the descent of the new Jerusalem and God and Christ dwelling on earth with their people and the wonderful garden that recapitulates uh, Eden in Genesis chapters one through three, all of that becomes part and parcel of what people call the millennium. And the big question is, did John mean a literal paradise on earth, or are you supposed to take this figuratively? And it seems as if the going interpretation in the second century AD was that yes, there will be a literal time when people are resurrected from the dead and when they will reign on earth earth with Christ, and when there will be this lovely garden with all of the fruit and, you know, the, the river that runs through it and so on and so forth. And we even get in the church fathers some uh, building on this idea that when grain grows, one grain of wheat uh, will be enough to satisfy the appetite of a lion, so that the lion will not have to eat, uh, you know, other animals, right? So that's one very, very popular view of the millennium in the second century AD. But soon there comes some pushback against this. For some reason, people are coming up with the idea that there is actually going to be a lot of sex in this kingdom. Well, there you the go. People who are, <laughs> the people who are against uh, the idea of a physical millennium on earth are accusing the people who are for it of saying there are going to be orgies and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's an interesting polemic going back and forth against these two interpretations. And eventually, for most people in the early church, from the evidence that we have of the church fathers, the spiritual interpretation wins. 
and we get what we would call today a non-literal interpretation of the millennium. And perhaps in the Western church anyway, the most popular uh, the most popular mode of this interpretation comes from Augustine, who puts out what we now call an amillennial view, and that is that the millennium is actually the time of the church on earth. It's between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And since Augustine was such an influential figure in the Western church, this idea moves forward. And uh, I know a lot of people still hold an amillennial view today. Mm. Yeah, that was, thank you so much for that explanation. I think people, we we get so confused, I think we confuse ourselves sometimes with the different positions and the different language that goes around them. So thank you for kind of explaining how that, those different types of things formulated over the centuries. I think that's really helpful for, for listeners to understand. So I think that yeah, it's it's good for us to kind of get a grasp of why are these positions out there? How did how did it come to be this way? So the explanation you gave of the early readers and the early interpreters and the church fathers and then Augustine especially for the West, I think that's really really helpful for us as we consider why these things are on the table before us and why why people have made such a, a big deal um about these these seemingly short verses and seemingly kind of just you know, minimal verses in the whole corpus of Revelation, but um, thank you for that. I appreciate that explanation. Um, Another aspect of Revelation that maybe, I don't know if misinterpreted is the right word, but I'll I'll run with it for now, uh, is that it's it's a book that is predominantly violent or... um, aggressive in tone and nature. But in your essay, you you make the great point. You say, there are indeed catastrophes in Revelation, but even more important are its visions of hope. And then you talk about how Revelation is about Jesus from beginning to end, uh, written to give his followers the hope that their persecutors will perish, death will die, and all creation will be renewed. But I love that idea that there, there's catastrophes in Revelation, but the more important are the visions of hope. So could you maybe speak to that a little bit and how, I, I know previously in my life when I was younger, I would have totally, you know, told you that Revelation was mostly about catastrophe and and destruction and all of that stuff. Um, but it's really, as you dig into it, much more about hope and, and God's kingdom being fulfilled. Could you expound on that a little bit for us as, as readers of Revelation? Yes, it goes back to that prevalent idea in our culture today about apocalypse as catastrophe, right? Yes. So... There are definitely huge catastrophes in the book of Revelation. There's no doubt about that. But the book opens up and closes with Jesus. It's not the revelation, the apocalypse, literally in Greek, of catastrophe and hell. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Yes. And that is what is being unveiled here. And what's interesting, I just said the revelation of Jesus Christ. In English, of Jesus Christ is ambiguous, right? It can mean two different things. It can mean about Jesus Christ, or it can mean from Jesus Christ. And the same thing holds true in the Greek. So this is a a good translation here. Sometimes we can't get the Greek into English very well without a long explanation. But thankfully, in this first 
verse, in the first several words of Revelation, the Greek can make it perfectly with all of its nuances into English. The revelation about Jesus Christ, the revelation by Jesus Christ, because Jesus gave the revelation uh, to his angel to give to his slave, John. And by the way, just let me note, I'm reading right now out of the NRSV. Uh, that's my go-to Bible when I'm not reading from the Greek. And many, if not most of all of the translations into English I've ever read use the word servant where the actual word is slave. Remember what we talked about with uh, the whole Roman economy running on the backs of slavery. So really the question of revelation is whose slave are you gonna be? Are you going to be the slave of Jesus Christ or are you going to be the slave of the Roman empire? Make your choice. It's gonna be one or the other. Yeah. No, that's a great point that, you you mentioned that in the essay that the question is you know whose servant or whose slave will you be and man aren't we faced with that on a daily basis in in our modern lives because we like to read revelation and we do this with the bible writ large in in most ways and in some ways we try to make it really um, crisp and clean and we don't uh, read certain words that are in there and we kind of smooth out some of the the wrinkles that are truly present in the scriptures. And Revelation sets before us, much like you just so so wonderfully said, if you want to sum up Revelation as a question, which is what you, you do in your essay in this, in this paragraph, you say, you know, the question is, who, who will you serve? Who will you be a slave to? And there's really only two options in front of you. You can either be a slave of, of Jesus Christ, the slain lamb who is reigning and ruling, or you can be a slave of the empire, of the imperial cult, of, of Babylon, of Rome, of governmental systems that are anti-God's kingdom. And it's... It's a question that we, as as modern people, even must reckon with. So, Revelation is a book that gets can get pulled forward into our daily lives and in our daily Bible studies, maybe much more easily than than most of us have thought previously. I think that if you're looking at Revelation as a book about catastrophes and hell, you will miss exactly what you said so well there. Uh, that we must read the book of Revelation in its historical context. When you're reading a book that's 2,000 years old, you're going to misinterpret it terribly if you don't try as best you can to put it in its historical context. And frankly, putting it in its historical context is hard because it's a different time, a different culture. So much of what we could use to put it in context is just gone through the vicissitudes of time. But at the same time, there is always a Roman Empire. It doesn't matter where you are, where you live, what period of time you're living in, there is always a Roman Empire. And that is what makes the book timeless. There will always be oppressive systems who are trying to make you their slave and who do not like it when you rebel against them, uh, when you do not give them your allegiance. And I'm purposely leaving this open mm. so that anyone of any political persuasion. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, we, they like. 
Exactly. And we have listeners, I, I mean, we have listeners around the world. And so it's not like a specific country. It's not a specific time period. It's not a specific governmental system or even individual or whatever. But regardless of if you're listening in New Zealand or we have lots of listeners in Spain and Portugal and the UK and Germany even, it doesn't matter where, where you're listening or even what time period you're listening. Um, we are faced with the same questions that revelation placed before its its original hearers and readers and i think what you just said you said it so eloquently that that this question is is placed before us regardless of time it is truly a timeless book a timeless question um as we as we study the scriptures uh, hopefully together in community um not not just by ourselves but but with others to maybe kind of help see the, the these systems around us because sometimes we can miss them because we're so embroiled within them and we have to tease that out um, and Revelation, I think, helps us do that. Uh, so we've talked about a couple of the the things that might get misinterpreted or things that uh, come up a lot when we study Revelation. Do you have maybe one or two other um, things that you just, as you've taught Revelation so many times and you've engaged with so many students and you've written so much on it, um, what have you come up against a lot in, in your scholarship and in your classrooms um, where you're like, okay, this is something that's consistently misinterpreted or that we consistently need to review as we study Revelation. There is so much in Revelation and people come at it in so many different ways. As you were saying that, I was trying to think of, well, you know, what's something that I see over and over and over again? I see so many differing uh, takes on Revelation, but I think if I were to mention something that a lot of people talk about, it would be the idea that there is a so-called rapture in the book of Revelation. And that goes back to what we were talking about with the different forms of millennialism. And I mentioned, you know, my uh, homeschooling group that I didn't join that talked about a pre-tribulation rapture. So rapture just means to snatch. It's, you know, the birds uh, that are called raptors, Hawks. Um, I, I'm not a, an orn, ornithologist. Is that the right word? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm going to trust you on that one. I'm not sure what the word is. <laughs> okay. I'm just hoping that I don't make a mistake here. So I'm just going to stick with hawks. The sorts of birds who grab their prey with their talons, as opposed to pecking at them with their beaks, they're called raptors because they snatch their prey. So uh, raptor rapture means to snatch. And I think that one thing that people will see at the beginning of Revelation chapter four, um, when John finishes getting the letters to the seven churches, there's a big transition and he hears a voice saying, come up here. And a lot of people will think that this is a rapture at this point. But the thing is, he says, at once I was in the spirit. So John never actually travels up to heaven. He is just seeing what takes place as in a vision. And I'm thinking right now, I wish I could show your listeners some of this art that is in my mind over and over and over again in uh I, I can't call it ancient exactly, but in older Christian art, they portray John sitting on the island of Patmos, and he has a book and a pen on his lap, and he's looking up, 
And basically the entire the entire picture is filled up with the visions that John is going to see. So his rear is firmly on Patmos <laughs> the whole time that he is seeing uh, these visions. And even if it were a rapture in Revelation chapter 4, only John would be going up. It doesn't talk about people around the world disappearing up into heaven. Uh, but there is no rapture here. There is no rapture of any ordinary person in the Gospel of John. Hmm. That's, yes, absolutely. I think that's something that that a lot of people, especially if you grew up in my generation, or maybe even the generations before me with works like The Late Great Planet Earth, or even Left Behind, things of that nature. I mean, the very title of Left Behind is, is indicative of, of its position on certain things. Uh, and I think that we need to be reminded that there are different approaches, and perhaps in some ways, uh, more biblically uh, astute approaches, if we're actually going to dig into what the text is, is saying here. I love that illustration, though, of, of the raptors. I, I've never come into contact with thinking of it that way. So I think that that's something that we can really keep in our brains. That's a, that's a great illustration. So thank you for that. Um, well, I want to help us kind of wrap up a little bit here, but I, I want to, uh, you've mentioned to me offline before we started a really exciting project, uh, not in the vein of revelation, but in the vein of something else that I know is near and dear to many of my listeners hearts, which is CS Lewis and his writings and works. Um, and you have an exciting project coming out on that soon. Would you tell us a little bit about that and maybe give us, give us a title so we can jot it down to, to look that up when it releases? Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do this. I'm so excited about this project. It is a book on C.S. Lewis and the Bible. And right now, the title, uh, for reasons too tedious to go into, is not yet settled. But it will be on C.S. Lewis and the Bible, and it's coming out with Erdman's. And I hope that it will be out in 2022. And uh, I have always loved C.S. Lewis, like many listeners probably, I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia when I was in single digits. And then as I became a teenager, I picked up Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, the Abolition of Man, uh, the Science Fiction Trilogy, and what may be Lewis's absolute best book, Till We Have Faces. And just loved, loved, loved C.S. Lewis. When I got to Missouri State, I was asked, what would you teach if you could teach any course? And I said, a course on C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so I've been teaching a course at C.S. Lewis now for the last 15 years. And I noticed from interacting with students on this uh, who pushed the issue more than I would have, interestingly enough, what with me being a biblical scholar, on the interesting ways that Lewis uses and doesn't use the Bible. So I started working on that and giving papers on it, and eventually it just became a full-blown book. And you said that this doesn't really have much to do with the topic that we're talking about. Uh, I just want to throw in one way that it could. Oh, absolutely. Please do. Talk about this. Uh, when we were offline discussing this, you know, before uh, we started taping, my final chapter is on how C.S. Lewis uses the Bible in the Chronicles of Narnia. And a lot of your listeners may know that the seventh book in the series is called The Last Battle, and it is the apocalypse of the Chronicles of Narnia. And 
if you know about the Bible, you realize that Lewis is really, really depending on Revelation and a lot of other apocalyptic literature. But when I wrote this section of the chapter, I was just gobsmacked with how beautifully and amazingly Lewis is incorporating the, the book of Revelation into the last battle. I thought I had really done a good reading before. And when I started digging in, I was just so amazed. Uh, it's, it's a genius book, not my book, <laughs> the last battle, <laughs> the last battle and what Lewis does with the Bible there. Yes. I, I, I mean, the Silver Chair is my favorite, but Last Battle is my second favorite, and those those final concluding chapters of that book are beautiful, and I, I cannot wait to read this book of yours that's coming out, again, hopefully in 2022. Guys, if you're interested in any type of C.S. Lewis things or anything from what Dr. Baines has, has mentioned today, go ahead and jot down her name, highlight or mark this podcast episode, and then keep keep a lookout for her book coming out with Erdman's, uh, hopefully again next year. Uh, that's good. That, that sounds so awesome. Uh, so uh, just thank you so much, Dr. Baines, for your time and for being uh, on the podcast. Man, I learned so much and I hope that listeners, you, you were blessed by, by Dr. Baines as well. So thank you again for your time. And uh, I just, I'm so grateful for you and grateful uh, to, to have gotten to know you today. So all of you listeners, if you would, you guys know the routine, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. Uh, if you learned something today, go ahead and share it with a, a friend or maybe even a family member, uh, maybe start a conversation with your Bible study group or something like that. We would love to hear how this episode uh, taught you or informed you. Uh, so keep us, keep us in the loop via our social media accounts as well. And we will be back next week.